This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Friday morning wake-up call. We have made it to the end of the week. Cold one here in the Northeast. It's only 19 degrees in Middletown when I got up this morning. So uh, uh, I returned to the deep freeze after a uh, a warm-up for a couple of days, but it's not snowing, so that's the good news. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff to get to this morning. I did a uh, high school basketball game last night, girls game. The Cromwell girls uh, beat an undefeated Coggenshock team last night. 38-32 was not one of those games we're going to send to the Hall of Fame. Uh, pretty ragged game, uh, pretty bad officiating as well, uh, but a good win for Cromwell last night. They go to 4-2 and two, uh, with that win last night. Um, before we get to actual stuff going on on the fields, on the courts, et cetera, a uh, disturbing story that came out yesterday uh, in Michigan. Uh, uh, John Gettert, who has uh, was a longtime U.S. Olympics gymnastics coach, uh, actually led the U.S. team to a gold medal uh, in 2012, was charged yesterday uh, with a, two dozen crimes, including uh, including human trafficking. Uh, just bizarre. Uh, he was a guy that, um, was linked to Larry Nasser, the former, uh, doctor that is spending decades in prison now after sexually assaulting a number of female, uh, gymnasts. And, uh, but they said that the charges against Gettert weren't really related to Nasser, but some of the stuff was just as disturbing because it included sexual assault, um, you know, and so he was going to be uh, in uh, going to jail for a long, long time. Well, it, prosecutors never got a chance to uh, try their case because Gettert committed suicide just hours after finding out that uh, that he had been charged. Uh, he drove to a rest stop in Michigan and uh, killed himself. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess, you know, you want to say, well, good, but at the same time, I'm sure that the young women that were uh, involved with this guy for so many years would like to have seen him in a courtroom doing the perp walk. Uh, but, you know, he was, you know, charged with uh, turning his gym that he used for training into a, a the prosecutors call it a criminal enterprise by coercing girls to train and then verbally and physically abusing them. I mean, it's just, uh, um, you know, and he was accused of recruiting minors for forced labor. I, you know, that seems like a stretch to me, but basically saying that with his gym, he was forcing them to uh, train for excess numbers of hours. But uh, 
excessive physical conditioning, you know, and forcing them to perform even when they were hurt. I mean, it's just, you know, it's disturbing stuff. Uh, and the fact that, look, a lot of these young women, you know, the ones that Larry Nasser were involved with and the ones that Getter were involved with are carrying the scars to this day. They all, a lot of them have eating disorders and uh, some of them have attempted suicide and, and are harming themselves. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, uh, it was a whole, and, you know, it's kind of like, um, it was a show on one of the, on Lifetime or Bravo or one of, you know, one of these reality shows about, you know, moms that have their kids like in beauty pageants and stuff. It's like there's this whole underculture um, to some of these things that a lot of us aren't aware of. You know, these these stage moms and these sports parents that would push their kids and, you know, put them in situations. I mean, if you're a parent that put your trust in a guy like Larry Geddert with your child, you know, what are you thinking you know, and what are you feeling today? Because at some point, you know, when Gettert's abusing these kids and forcing them to uh, to practice when they're hurt or perform when they're hurt, and if he's physically and, and emotionally abusing these kids, at some point, they had to have gone to their parents, didn't they? And said, Mom, I don't want to go back there. Or, Mom, this, you know, or Dad, this is what's going on. How was this allowed to go on for as long as it did? I mean, are you, do you want, are, are you so driven to push your kids uh, to succeed that you're willing to allow them to be abused? You know, and I think that's part of, of what bothers me with the whole thing with Geddert and with Nasser. At some point, didn't these girls speak out to their parents? Where are the parents in all of this? You know, I'm not, you know, I mean, Gettert and Nasser were monsters. There's no question about that. But what were the parents doing? Why, how could they not have known any of this was going on? That's the first thing that jumped to my mind, you know, when I heard this yesterday. You know, I, I remember when my kids were young and, you know, they wanted to get involved with sports. So, you know, we got them involved in softball and with soccer. And, you know, and there were times that they said they didn't want to go. Well, I don't feel like playing. But it had nothing to do with the coaches mean or anything. It just had to do with, hey, you know what? I found out I'm really not that interested, you know, but with, with this gymnastic stuff, it's a whole, it's a whole culture and it's just kind of freaky. And it just bothers me about where the parents were while this was all happening. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, the girls will not get their day in court with this guy. And by the way, you know, this getter guy was, his name was brought up a lot during the Larry Nassar, uh, trial. You know, there were a lot of young ladies that stepped up and said, hey, you know, uh, you should uh, you should be behind bars right next to Larry Nasser. Of course, he wasn't charged at the time, but obviously this has been something that's been in the works for a while. So Getter was 63 years old and uh, decided it was better to uh, take his own life than, than face this. And, you know, uh, the world is without, you know, one more scumbag, not a bad thing. Um. The NCAA announced yesterday they have come up with contingency plans for the men's and women's basketball tournament. The fact that, you know, it's, I mean, we're still seeing teams having to pause seasons this late, you know, in the year. Well, the NCAA is concerned when they pick their basketball championship brackets, you know, what happens if, you know, somebody can't, you know, all of a sudden they get an outbreak and they can't go. What do you, what do you do? 
to keep the integrity of the tournament intact. So what the NCAA has decided to do is that the last four teams, the teams that don't get in the tournament but were on the bubble, so to speak, they're going to be held kind of in a, um, uh, in a holding pattern to serve as replacements should any conference with multiple bids have a school that's unable to participate. So if the Big Ten gets four schools in and one of them has an outbreak and can't, can't go, one of those four, last four teams out would be given um, that bid to fill for multiple, you know, for conferences with multiple um, bids. For in, but for conferences like, uh, let's say, the Northeast Conference, it's a small conference here in the, in the northeast part of the country that includes Central Connecticut, Sacred Heart, um, fairly Dickinson University, St. Francis of Pennsylvania, uh, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of schools. I, you know, I think there's 13 schools in there. If they, they're only going to get one bid to the tournament because they're a mid-major school and you know they're they're going to get in the conference. They're going to get in the NCAA tournament. They're going to have one team. They're going to get killed. But uh, but what will happen with conferences like that that only get one bid? The conference can then designate a replacement school. More than likely, it would be the team that finished first and didn't get in the tournament because they lost in the conference tournament, or it's going to be, uh, you know, the team that lost in the conference championship game. And so the conference would designate the replacement. And what's interesting about it is, let's say, you know, this team was going to be an eight seed. Well, if uh, the original team has to drop out, that replacement team would jump right into that seed, even if their record and you know their season record doesn't deserve that. Excuse me. To preserve the bracket, they would just put them in that same slot. And now this is only going to be good for the time from the time that the brackets are picked until the tournament starts. Once the tournament starts, if a team has to pause because they've had a, a coronavirus positive test or something like that, then the, their opponent will win by forfeit and they'll just move on. So these replacement teams will only be for that, you know, four or five days between when the tournament bracket is picked and the, and the tournament actually starts. Once it starts, if you can't go because of positive tests, then you just forfeit and your opponent will move on. So, uh, and, and this will go for both the men's and the women's tournaments. Let's hope that we are at a point. I mean, I know we're still getting some schools that are, are struggling with this, but, you know, and Iona was just one that just had to shut down and decided they're not going to play uh, until the conference tournament. But let's hope we're getting closer to the point where this is going to be less and less likely um, as the numbers continue to drop around the country. Um, the UConn women won the Big East championship yesterday, drilling Creighton 81-49, to a game that was over by the first quarter, as you might expect. Uh, the only surprise in this game last night was who the leading scorer was for UConn. Uh, freshman Nika Mule had a career-high 19 points last night. She had 15 of them in the first quarter. Um, and UConn won this one easily. They're now 19-1, and uh, undefeated in, in Big East play at 16-0. and They've got a couple of Big East games left. They play um, Butler on Saturday and Marquette on Monday. Um, this is UConn's 27th regular season conference championship. 
uh, you know, it's their first Big East title since 2011, obviously, because they left to go to the American Conference. But, and by the way, you know, and this is this is the the difficulty that you have with women's basketball. UConn has won all their conference games this season by 21 points or more. Think about that. You you would never see that in men's basketball. It just doesn't happen. But, you know, now women's basketball has gotten a lot better. The The gap has closed between the haves and the haves not. But there are still a big talent gap in not just the Big East, in every conference across the country in women's basketball. You know, and I don't know, uh, you know, it, it's getting better. But, you know, and, and I mean, we had a time where there was only legitimately maybe four schools that had a chance to win a national title. I think now we're probably at about eight to ten, which is great. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's going to be very, very hard for anybody to unseat one of those top four teams. And UConn's only going to get better, by the way. You know, think about this. You, what UConn's doing this year, they're doing it with all underclassmen. And they have two of the top five recruits, two of the top five ranked high school kids coming to UConn next year. The number one kid, uh, Azzy Fudd, and then they also have the number five ranked recruit coming to UConn next year to, to join this ridiculous underclass team that they have. I mean, they are just going to be unstoppable. But uh, another solid effort last night. Uh, Paige Beckers, who this, the potential player of the year in women's basketball as a freshman, uh, didn't have a great night last night. She only scored 13 points, 5 of 12 shooting. It's an off night for her. But, you know, she only had 13 points, but she had six rebounds, nine assists, a couple of steals. Uh, she had a block shot. She sold some hot dogs at halftime. I mean, she just did everything last night. Olivia Nelson Adota, 11 points uh, and 11 rebounds, another double-double for her. So UConn shot 52% from the field and and held Creighton to just 37% shooting. So, um, you know, another good effort for the UConn women. You know, and they'll, they'll finish out the regular season undefeated. I would imagine they'll roll through the conference tournament and win that as well. And, you know, then we get to the fun stuff, you know, and – and, and actually, we don't even get to the fun stuff until we get to the uh, probably the Elite Eight. And then UConn will get some tests again to see how well these young kids are able to handle the pressure of a postseason tournament. Uh, as far as the UConn men go, they play tomorrow. They are at Marquette. It is a 2.30 start. Uh, check that. It's at UConn. 2.30 start. Uh, this is a Marquette team that UConn beat earlier this year, but it was not easy. They were down 18. Tyler Polly went nuts. Um, and they came back to beat them the first time they played. But this is a Marquette team that just went down and, and whacked North Carolina the other day. You know, So they are going to be a challenge. UConn cannot afford any stumbles here. You know, They've got three regular season games left, plus the conference tournament. And uh, they need... Probably 14 wins to definitely get in. As of right now, if you look at the uh, their rankings, you know in the uh, uh, you know the power rankings and stuff, they are in as of right now. But you know what? They stumble against Marquette or lose one of those you know last games down the stretch, and they could be in trouble. And by the way, if you're a UConn fan, you want to watch the rest of the season because you're going to get your last chance to see James Booknight, the super uh, sophomore uh, who was injured earlier this year. He, he continues to climb up the draft boards 
on a lot of teams or a lot of uh, media outlets. This kid's not coming back to UConn for his junior and senior years, folks. He's going to the NBA. That injury that he had this year, I'm sure, scared the hell out of him and realized, you know what, I've got to go because if I get hurt, I could cost myself millions of dollars. Uh, Sports Illustrated mock draft right now had him, has him going as the number six overall pick in the next NBA draft. So he's not coming back to UConn. So enjoy these last few games uh, that you're going to see uh, him of him in a UConn uniform. Uh, good news out of Boston yesterday. Uh, the Massachusetts government has decided that they are going to allow fans at games starting on March the 22nd. So that means that the Bruins, uh, when they host the Islanders on March 23rd, are going to be able to have some fans in the stands. It's going to be limited capacity. Uh, it's going to be something between 10 and 15% of capacity. But they're going to have fans on the 23rd. Uh, a, a week later, the Celtics have a home game against the New Orleans Pelicans. They will be able to have fans. The Red Sox will be able to have some butts in the seats starting on April 1st. Um, for Fenway, it probably means around 5,000 fans. Now, it seats, you know, 35,000 people. So, you know, it's in the grand scheme of things, you know, there's going to be a lot of empty seats. But considering they played there last year in front of nobody, this is great news. Uh, you know, and I, my hope is that as we go along and, and if we're where we think we're going to be or where the government thinks we're going to be, that by July, everybody will be eligible to get the vaccine. You know, maybe we're at 50% capacity by July or August. You know, maybe at the end of the season, you know, we're closer to having 20,000 people in the stands, you know, than five. That'd be great. Uh, and obviously this is going to carry through to uh, the fall with the Patriots. They'll be able to have fans. It's, you know, look, this is this is great news. You know, we're getting closer and closer to some semblance of normalcy. Uh, so I can't wait. And obviously uh, the Red Sox are really excited about this. The players were talking about it all day yesterday. It's, you know, it's, it's great. And uh, it's not just Boston. Cleveland and Cincinnati, we talked about this the other day. Uh, are going to have fans. Ohio is going to allow that. Cincinnati is go, has been cleared to have about 13,000 people um, at Great American Ballpark. The Cleveland Indians are going to have around 10,000 people uh, at their stadium. So that's great. Uh, the Buffalo Sabres are going to start allowing fans at their hockey games in New York. Um, it's only going to be about 2,000 fans, but again, you know, it's great. It, there was... Uh, uh, Steph Curry was talking about it the other day in the NBA. He said, you know, he was, he was at a game and there was only a few thousand people there. He said, but you know what? There were people in, you know, the fans that were there, there were people that were heckling. He said it was the greatest thing ever. You know, I mean, and, and that's one of the things that I think is underrated. And that's one of the reasons why when we talk about last season's baseball, you know, when it was only 60 games. It wasn't just that it was only 60 games and the abbreviated, you know, spring training that they tried to have in July. And it wasn't just that. It was a lot of these players feed off of the crowd, whether it's positive or negative. You know, playing in an empty stadium is bizarre. Now, I mean, look, a lot of these kids are used to that. You know, when you're in high school and college, 
you know, you're probably, you know, in, in a lot of smaller places, you're playing in front of, you know, a handful of people. But once you get to the pros and, you know, into, you know, into the minor leagues and, you know, all of a sudden there's 5,000 people in the minor leagues and then you get to the major leagues and it's 35,000 people, you know, people, they feed off of that. You know, so I think there were, there's no doubt in my mind, there were guys in Major League Baseball last year that struggled just trying to get up for a game. And you'll say, well, you're getting paid millions of dollars that should be motivation enough. It, you know, but for, I think for professional athletes, it's different. I, I know for college ath- athletes, it's different. I remember, you know, my years working in, in college athletics, you know, when we would go to, uh, and you know, it's it, like at Sacred Heart University, for instance, you know, when we would have a home game during the regular season, you know, we'd probably get a thousand people there. All right. If we're lucky. But then the conference tournament rolls around and I, you know, you get to a conference championship game and suddenly there's 5,000 or 6,000 insane people there and the place has an electricity to it. And there is no doubt that guys get up more for that and play differently. And there's a level of excitement and adrenaline that comes with playing in front of a crowd like that than it does in front of crickets. So I think that there is no doubt that there were guys last year that struggled because of that. You know, the average Joe may say that sounds ridiculous, but I think there is definitely something to that. Definitely. It's 28 minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 30 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call here on a Friday morning. You know, one of the things I was wondering, as they decide that they're going to allow fans in these venues once again, I'm wondering, for instance, at Fenway Park, are they going to jack up the ticket prices? Or will they keep them what they were supposed to be um, last year? Now, you would think that it would be a PR nightmare if they decide that, yeah, well, we're going to have 2,000 seats or we're going to have 5,000 people there, but the tickets are going to be outrageous. You know, I, I would like to think that they won't do that. Um, I am a little bit concerned about it. I mean, look, tickets at Fenway are expensive anyway. You know, I mean, the last time my wife and I went and sat in box seats, it cost us 75 bucks a piece. You know, and that was, by the way, and that wasn't through a ticket service. That was, that was through the Red Sox. It was, we sat down the right field line and it was 75 bucks a seat. I wonder if the prices are going to stay the same or if it's going to, they're going to try to make up the amount, you know, revenue by gouging the the, the 5,000 that do show up. And the only reason I wonder this is I was talking last night when I did the, uh, the girls basketball, high school basketball game, I was talking to my broadcast partner, Jay Hickey. He's on his way down to Florida. He goes down to Florida every year for a couple of weeks down in Fort Myers. And he usually likes to take in a couple of spring training games. Now, they're only allowing, I think, 2,500 fans at JetBlue Park down in Fort Myers for the Red Sox spring training games. And most of those are, are going to go to season ticket holders because they're giving them first dibs uh, on the seats that are available, but he was looking into it and it looked like a lot of the seats for a spring training game were going for 200 bucks. 
Now, I, you know, I don't know whether that was through that because they don't, they didn't actually go on sale, I think, until today. But I guess he was looking at it and uh, looking online and he said 200 bucks. Now, I don't know if that was through the Red Sox or whether that was through, you know, some kind of ticket service or whatever. But I, I hope, you know, that the Red Sox aren't going to try to, you know, gouge 5,000 people just to get some butts in the seats. Uh, I hope, you know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm being naive and that's just the way business works, but I spent all my life, uh, working in PR, you know, and to me, you always had to think about the consequences of everything that you do. You know what I mean? You know, okay, we're going to do this. Well, what's going to happen if we do that? You know what I mean? Uh, so that's that's what I worry about. You know, and so we'll see. I mean, actually, I, I'm imagining they go on sale today, so I, it's probably not going to be very hard for me uh, uh, to go on and check and see uh, if if they are indeed doing that. But I hope not. You know, and same thing with the Bruins. Same thing with... Uh, you know, with with uh, the New England Revolution at Gillette Stadium and, and with the uh, the Celtics, I mean, I would hope that they're just going to keep things normal. You know, I hope. So, anyway, we shall see. But uh, it's, it's good news either way. Uh, the Red Sox open spring training games this Sunday. Can't wait. <laughs> now, the... Uh, the Red Sox will not be televising their spring training game on Sunday, but they will be doing uh, a dozen games on Nesson during the course of the spring. So about 12 of the 29 games that they are scheduled to play uh, will be televised by Nesson. I think there's a couple others that are going to be on ESPN. So that's great, you know, and I I can't wait. I know it's spring training, and I know that most people probably would rather watch a test pattern on television than that, but uh, it's been so long, you know, this is always, I'm always like this, you know, the first spring training games, I can't wait. Uh, Nathan Avaldi is scheduled to pitch for the Red Sox on Sunday. Uh, Garrett Richards is going to get the start on Monday. You know, they're only going to work an inning or two just to start, you know, getting things stretched out. Uh, Alex Cora did say that he's going to have a number of regulars in there in on Sunday's game. Rafael Devers, uh, Kike Hernandez, uh, Bobby Dalbeck, Christian Vasquez are all scheduled to play. Uh, as far as, you know, the outfield, they haven't determined that yet. But uh, uh, when you've got people in New England clamoring for baseball because, you know, we want to get back to some sense of normalcy. Uh, obviously, the spotlight's going to be a little bit brighter on this spring training. Um, one of the things that is going to be fascinating to watch this year with this Red Sox team is what's going to happen with the development of some of these young kids, and specifically Bobby Dalbeck, Raphael Devers, um, and, uh, you know, seeing whether they, whether a Devers can get back to his form that he had a couple of years ago or whether the regression that he made last year is the start of a, uh, a pattern, which I hope it's not, but the one that is going to be the most fascinating to me. And I think for Red Sox fans is, is Bobby Dalbeck. Everybody is excited for this kid. Uh, he's got 
tons of power. A lot of people think that he has a chance to break the home run rookie record in Boston, which, by the way, is held by Walt Dropo uh, from Connecticut. Walt Dropo from uh, Moosep, Connecticut. Uh, hit 34 of them in 1950. A lot of people think Dahlbeck can beat that. Uh, the other problem, though, with Dahlbeck is how often he strikes out. Now, it's a small sample size with Boston last year. He's only played in AAA for 30 games, which is part of the concern, I think, for a lot of people. Is is he ready to make that jump? But the Red Sox have decided that they are going to hand first base to Bobby Dahlbeck and, you know, let's see what happens. Now, if he's struggling a month into the season, you know, who knows what they'll do. But Dahlbeck came in. He's lost 10 pounds. Uh, he lost 5% of his body fat, so he is in the best shape that he has been in. Uh, but here's what concerns me about Dahlbeck. There was an interview with him this morning in the Boston Globe. Pete Abraham uh, talked to him. And here's my concern. Bobby Dahlbeck says... I'm not worried about how often I strike out, <laughs> you know, and this is where this is the kind of stuff that drives me nuts. We talked about it on the show yesterday about, you know, guys don't care if they strike out 200 times. It used to be, you know, an embarrassment. Now people don't care. And Bobby Dahlbeck has said, uh, you know, he said to me an out is an out. You know, he said, uh, he said, you're only as good as the pitches you swing at. So he said, I'm not too worried about it. Now, he also said that he thinks that there's situations where you do have to put the ball in play, and he thinks that he's going to be able to do that most of the time. Uh, okay, uh, but, you know, the early returns and the early things we've seen from Dahlbeck don't lend themselves to that. So that's concerning to me. You know, the and the other reason it's concerning to me is the Red Sox have a couple other guys on this roster that strike out a ton. Hunter Renfro, guy is going to be a regular in the outfield. He has struck out 28% of the time in his major league career. 28%. That's about 1,600 plate appearances. So it's about three full seasons of baseball. He's been in a little bit longer than that, but he hasn't been an everyday player. But he has strikes out 28% of the time in his career. That is way too high. Uh, Frankie Cordero, the kid they recently got in a trade. Well, it's a small sample size. I get it. It's only 315 plate appearances. Frankie Cordero strikes out 35% of the time in his career. Again, small sample size, but even in the minor leagues, he strikes out a ton. Now, you look at Cordero's numbers in the minors, and you see that the numbers have uh, lowered themselves a little bit. But if you're looking at guys like, you know, Dahlbeck and Renfro and Cordero, you know, I mean, if, I'm really concerned about how often they're going to strike out. I really am. Now, on the other side of it, you have a guy like Alex Verdugo who doesn't strike out a ton. You know, I mean, Alex Verdugo is a guy... I one of the most refreshing things I've ever heard in the last uh, you know the last couple of years was Alex Verdugo in the interview with Pete Abraham saying I don't really care about the launch angle stuff. You know, he said uh, uh, to me, you know, you gotta you gotta hit the ball 
you know, where it's pitched. You know, he likes to spray the ball all over the place. And you know what's interesting? He doesn't like taking batting practice on the field. He'd rather do it in the cage. He thinks he, he, he can um, adjust his swing better in the cage than he does taking live batting practice out on the field. But, you know, and if you look at Verdugo's numbers last year, you got to be uh, you got to be impressed. He only swings and misses. I mean, I think like six percent of the time. It's not very high. So, Verdugo, refreshing. These other two, these other guys. I really worry about how often the Red Sox are going to strike out. You know, even Alex Alex Cora in the interview says, "Well, you can't strike out all the time, right?" <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. And and if maybe this moderate change to the ball they've made this year. You know, this new dead ball, they're calling it. That's, I mean, it's... it's and, and pitchers have noted that the ball feels different. Even, um, I, I think it was you, Darvish, said that the ball felt like it was bigger to him. Now, it's not. Major League Baseball has said the ball is the same size. The, all they did was they took out some of the tension, I guess, of the first layer of, uh, of wrapping underneath the leather, that they just loosened it slightly. So the ball shouldn't be any bigger, but you Darvish said he picked it up and he could swear he swore the ball was bigger. Um, I think that you know, I think the it may have felt bigger to him because I think the other thing that Major League Baseball is trying to work on is the seam height. There was a big difference last year in the the height of the seams, and pitchers were having to grip the ball a lot tighter because the seams were lower to get the proper grip on the ball. So maybe you know, maybe there's been some adjustment to that. I don't know, but we'll see. But anyway, they. Uh, they start hitting them on Sunday. Can't wait. And uh, opening day can't come fast enough. Uh, one other baseball note before we move on. Uh, Sin Shu Chu, who has played for the uh, Texas Rangers for the last seven years, uh, is leaving MLB, and he is heading to Korea. He has signed a one-year contract to play uh, in his native country of South Korea. Uh, Chu was a, I'll tell you what, He's a guy that had a heck of a major league career. He hit about 275, over 200 home runs in his career. Um, drove in about 800 runs, stole some bases. He was an all-star back in 2018. He also played for uh, the Mariners and the Cleveland Indians. Uh, good major league baseball player. And so uh, he is going to finish out his career. He's 38 years old, uh, so he's going to finish out his career. He signed a, uh, a $2.4 million deal to play uh, in the KBO uh, this coming year. It is 43 minutes past the hour. We're going to take one more break, and then we'll be back. Got a couple more things to talk about before we get out of here. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country.